Good morning. Yeah, my name is Brandon. I'm the pastor of, well, I'm just one of the pastors here at Sojourn Heights. And as he said, we are uh, beginning an eight-week series uh, in the book of Job. Job is part of what's called the Old Testament. Um, That's part of the Bible that comes up before Jesus. uh, And it deals with some of life's most difficult and perplexing questions. And so uh, let's get started. I'm going to make an assumption. Uh, It might be a bold assumption, but I'm going to make an assumption that we've all been to a party, right? We've all had something like this happen to us. You get invited to a party, you show up at the party, you don't really know anybody at the party, and the person who invited you says, hey, Bill, I'm so glad that you're here. I've got to introduce you to some people. And they start walking you over and going, hey, this is so-and-so, and this is so-and-so, and this is so-and-so. And all the extroverts are like, this is awesome. I'm not going to remember your name or your name or your name because I'm going to meet all the people here tonight. And the introverts are like, when is this going to end? I just realized I don't want to be here. How soon can I leave and it not be rude? Right? We've all been there, right? Yeah, okay. Maybe not. Uh, Here's the point and here's what I need us to do today. Um, I, I need us to pretend that I invited you to a party. And yes, Pastors like to party, right? We will even bring Greek Bibles. Um, parsing words is fun. Uh, and, uh, and you walk through the door, and I say, hey, come here. I, I need to introduce you to some people. Uh, because for us to, to follow Job on this journey, uh, I need to make three introductions. One, to the author of Job. Two, to the book of Job. And then third, to the question of Job, the big question that Job is asking. And so, First, the author of Job. Um, Job was written, it's anonymous, but it was written by a Hebrew uh, who was well-versed. He he knew the scriptures, but he didn't just know the scriptures. He was a global traveler, right? Today, we would have said things like, man, that that dude's got a high cultural IQ. We'd have said things like, man, that that guy's a, he's he's just a global traveler, well-educated in the ways of the world, but he was also a man who deeply, deeply struggled with the way things were, who, like many of us, looked at the world, saw the violence that was taking place, and wrestled. And so what he does in Job is he takes this wrestle, and he takes the very best of this global wisdom that he's accumulated, and he brings it underneath the wisdom of God. And so if I could uh, maybe say this to non-Christians in the room, if you're not a Christian in the room, let, let, let me say this. Maybe you're not interested in Christianity. Maybe you have doubts. Maybe you have questions. Some questions are very legitimate, and we want Sojourn to be a safe place to bring questions and ask them. But let me, let me invite you to this, because here, here's what I probably am right about. I'm probably right that you do look at the world, and you, you look at Um, this past week, right, from Baton Rouge to Minneapolis to Dallas, which we're going to talk about in a minute. And and you probably wonder, like, how do I I make sense of this? How do I make sense of this? And here's my plea. Give Job eight weeks. Give the author of Job your ear for eight weeks. You may or may not leave with the answers that you want, but I can promise you this. We're going to have an honest wrestle. I can promise that. And so that's one. That's the author of Job, and now uh, I need to introduce you to the book of Job. Job was written 
roughly about 700 AD about a man who lived long before that. And that's not just a fun fact. The dating matters, but we'll come back to that one also um, in a little while. Um, Job has is, is got three sections to it, pretty straightforward. There's a beginning, chapters 1 and 2, an introduction, a conclusion, chapter 42, and in the middle of it is a series of conversations between Job and some friends, and then between Job and God. And so today we're going to just tee up the introduction, and then we're going to spend the rest of our time following and tracing a series of these conversations. And the topic of the conversations is going to take us straight to the question of Job, the question that Job is asking, he's addressing a universal human problem. He is addressing a universal human problem, and he's doing so with a question. It's a question that we can all identify with, every one of us in this room. There's no one in this room who hasn't at some point wondered the question that Job is asking. It's also a question that I'll tell you up front has caused many to leave and abandon belief in God at all. So what is the question? Let's open up Job and find out. Job 1.1. And so right off, what he's going to do is he's going to set the stage for the question uh, by introducing the person of Job. Verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. And so right up front in verse 1, uh, the author of Job does, does two strategic moves, two very intentional moves. One, um, first, is that he doesn't introduce Job in the traditional way that you would have introduced somebody in his day. So the author of Job would have thought of Job as, as kind of a patriarch or a, or a hero in the faith. And when you're introducing a hero in the faith, you would have always given uh, tribe or clan or country uh, or something that specifies who they are, where they are from. But he doesn't do that here. He doesn't do that here. And what he's doing is he's making a literary move where he's trying to say, hey, listen, Job doesn't just represent Israel. Job represents humanity. He represents all of humanity that has ever struggled. And so it, it's not just, hey, Israel, it's, hey, world. Job is a picture of you, which means for us, Christian or non-Christian in the room, Job represents you. It's written for you. Second thing he does is that he introduces Job as a man whose heart is completely captivated by God. He, he is a man, if I can maybe say it like this, uh, he, he paints a picture of Job right up uh, to try to say that, hey, Job is like our Billy Graham. He's our Billy Graham. He's just a man whose heart captivated by God, but it doesn't stop there. He's also rich with a perfect family. Let me show you. Verse 2, there were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people in the east. And so these camels, let me just highlight one of them. Camels. Camels were a prestigious animal in the day. And so to have 3,000 camels is serious cash. Like, like serious cash. Like some of you guys, you make a good living. Praise the Lord for that. You ain't got nothing compared to Job. Like you are, richest dude in the room right now is in poverty relative to Job. And then you know how they, 
um, identified a perfect family in his day. Seven sons, three daughters. That was the perfect family. Not so much for my wife and I. With three kids and a fourth on the way, we kind of think the perfect family is two. So... (laughs) But here's the picture. Before my third or fourth child ever hear that, we're deleting this recording. Um, so here's the picture, right? He's, he's not just Billy Graham. He's Billy Graham with Bill Gates' money and a perfect family. That's the picture he's painting, but he doesn't stop there. There's more. Verse 4, his sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send an invite Send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the three and when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed to God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. You see that every other month, Job would party with his kids, feast with his kids, play with his kids. And then when he was done, he would go and he would offer sacrifices for his kids. Here's the next picture. Job is the dad that we all wish we had, that I longed to be deeply, deeply concerned with his kids' happiness and their holiness. And so the author begins teeing up the question by describing Job as Billy Graham with Bill Gates' money and the perfect family, living life as the dad we all long to have, the dad I wish I was. And now the scene shifts, takes a hard left turn, And this is where it gets interesting. Verse 6. Now, now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them. Now, this is, uh, we we are transported here in this heavenly picture uh, where it's this heavenly court scene. And a court scene uh, was a uh, was a common image in his day for how God ruled the world, and so Satan. We've got these heavenly beings that are in front of God, and Satan is among them. And the word Satan it simply means accuser here. It simply means accuser. And so I want you to think of it like this: I want you to think prosecuting attorney. I want you to think prosecuting attorney out there, ready to prosecute someone. And then we hit verse seven. And the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. Verse 8, And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Now, sojourn. Look at verse 7 with me. Look at verse 7 with me. Who, who initiates the conversation? 
the Lord or Satan? Now look at verse 8. Who offers up Job, the Lord or Satan? Yeah. Complicated, isn't it? Let me tell you what this doesn't mean. Let me tell you what it doesn't mean that the Lord initiated the conversation, the Lord offered up Satan. What it doesn't mean is that God is the active agent in what's about to happen to Job. It does mean, it does mean that pretending God is not sovereign over the affairs of the world will do nothing for your soul. Pretending God is not sovereign over the affairs of the world will do nothing for your worship, your delight, and your joy. In fact, in fact, to ignore verse 7 and 8 in this reality will only make God smaller. And when it's your turn to be Job, and listen, if you don't know the story of Job, in a minute it's going to get really bad for him. And at some point, we're Job. Death still reigns. At some point, we're Job. And when it's your turn to be Job, having a small God who's like a third grader fumbling around, not sure what he's doing, will do nothing for you. Nothing. You need a big God. Majestic God. Ignoring this reality will do nothing but make God smaller. And it matters because Satan's about to respond. And as he responds, he's going to take us right to the heart of the question. And here it is, verse 9. Then Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only, only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. And so here's Satan's point. Uh, of course he worships you, man. Like, of course he worships you. He's Bill Gates with a perfect family. Like, you have um, turned everything he has touched into gold. Of course, man. But Lord, if I take it away, you take it away. Either way, you watch what happens. You're going to find out he's not quite the worshiper that you think he is. So here's what Satan knows. Let me tell you, Satan has some keen understanding of humanity. And here's what he knows. He knows this. He knows that at our core, in our essence, we are lovers. Right? We're not just thinkers, we're lovers. Like we're driven by, I don't mean lovers like, pow, romance. I mean like we're driven by what we love. That's why we're pa romance. Like we're driven by our love. The quote from James K.A. Smith, right? Because what we love most, we want most. What we love most, we want most. Here's a quote, James K. Smith, brilliant. I encourage you to read everything he's written. The center of, I'm sure there's something out there I wouldn't encourage, but I haven't read all of it. And so what I've read, incredible. 
This is from you are what you love. The center of gravity is located not in the intellect, but in the heart. Why? Because the heart is the chamber of love. And it's loves, and it is our loves that orient us toward some end. It is my desires that define me. In short, you are what you love. And all of us, every one of us, there is this hardwired, woven in desire to love and be loved. And so when Job, or Satan, attacks Job's family, which he's going to, he's attacking what Job loves the most. And then when he attacks his possessions, he's attacking how he knows that Job is loved by God. Because in his day, blessing, uh, prosperity equaled blessing. So he's attacking both what Job loves the most and how Job knows that he is loved by God. And he also knows this. Many of us are too young to know this as a tangible reality, but it's not going to be long. I'm 38. I am too. Suffering is never neutral. Never. Suffering always pushes you toward what you love the most. Always. Always. It's why cancer will reveal to you what and who you love the most, what it is that you want the most. And so Satan takes away what he loves the most and says, listen, he's not going to be the worshiper you think he is. And then the rest of chapters 1 and 2 unfold it like this. Satan comes in, um, takes the life of his children, takes away his possessions, um, takes away his health, and then Job's wife turns on him. And then he has three friends show up. And these three friends come and they just sit with him. And then in the chapters to come, what we're going to find out is these three friends in these conversations, they represent the very best of ancient wisdom. And here's some irony for you. You want some irony? Here's some irony. It's, it's in the day that we're in today, it's irony might not be the right word. The best of ancient wisdom is also the best of modern wisdom. For an advanced people, we have not advanced that far. Here it is. You want the best of ancient wisdom? You read all the philosophers you want, you're going to find this being the best of modern wisdom as well. Good things should happen to good people. Bad things should happen to bad people. There it is. Here's how the world should and should not work. Good things should happen to bad people. Bad things should happen to bad people. You know what should not happen? Bad things happening to good people and good things happening to bad people. That is the best of ancient wisdom and it's the best of modern wisdom. And here's what, what's happening in, the cha- in these first two chapters of Job. Is that what Job is holding up is he's, he's saying, here's what, here's what it looks like the question is going to be. Like as you start tracing your way through these conversations from one friend to the next, to the next, to the next, what it's going to look like is here's the question. Why do bad things happen to good people? But let me tell you what that question is. That question is what happens when you jump into a pool and you jump in on the shallow end. And when you swim from the shallow to the deep end, eventually there's this curve down where you have to swim into the deep water to get across the pool. 
And as you follow these conversations, it's going to say, hey, listen, that, that question is one side of the pool, but at some point you've got to go down the slope into the deep end. And the deep end, the deeper question, the question that sits underneath these questions running throughout the book of Job is this, is God just in a world of injustice? Is God just in a world of injustice? And if we're going to answer that question, if we're going to answer that question faithfully, biblically, Christianly, we've got to put the story of Job in the larger narrative of the Bible. And the larger narrative of the Bible looks like this. Earlier I told you the date that Job was written matters. It matters, and here's why. Isaiah 53 was written after Job. Isaiah 53 is this really famous passage called The Suffering Servant, where he directly prophesies about some of the ways in which Jesus would suffer. And the best, like the, the, the best scholarship out there says this. It says that, you know what, Isaiah 53, what Isaiah had in mind when he wrote Isaiah 53 was Job. That Job... Job was this foretaste and the source material for who the suffering servant would be in Isaiah 53. So it's to say this, that Job is a suffering servant like Jesus would be, a suffering servant, innocent and righteous, and yet he suffers for us. To answer the question faithfully, we're going to have to take Job and put Job in the larger narrative of the Bible so that when we see Verses and words in Isaiah 53, like he was despised and rejected by men. He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted with his wounds we are healed. When we read words like this, we might be able to look back into Job, look forward to Jesus, and see this rich, beautiful tapestry of the scriptures coming together. So here it is again, is God just in a world of injustice? And we're going to spend the next eight weeks tracing this emotional journey with Job. But for now, I can say this, and I want to say this. The Job's question is not far from the hearts of many of us today. Given the week that we've had, crying out, oh God, why, oh God, where are you, are legitimate and real emotions. And so what we're going to do today is as a community, and if you're, if you're new here, we're welcome. I, I want you to hear and feel our hearts in this. We're going to pray. We're going to give space to pray. Together, on your own, it doesn't matter, but we're going to give space to pray. Because as God would have it in God's providence, we'd be looking at Job 1 and 2 today, talking about, is God just in a world of injustice? And so I think it would be awfully foolish of us to not pause and pray to not stop as a community and just pray. And before I do, I, I want to read a couple of quotes, a, uh, a quote from a girl named Janai Hamilton, one of, our, one of our members here, or at least pieces of it. Uh, and, then, and then I'm going to read 
something that Dodds Pangra, one of our pastors who's standing in the back, uh, wrote. And more of a pastoral encouragement to, to us. And I want to tell you where I think I failed and where I want to change and how I want to go forward. Before I read Janai's quote, if, if you listen closely enough or if you find it and you write it down and you start parsing all of the words, I'm, I'm sure some of you are going to be able to find something that you don't agree with or that upsets you. Now is not the time. Sojourn, listen to me. I love you. Now is not the time. The heart of this is the heart of one who is mourning and lamenting death, all death, any death. And I want that heart to... Here it is. As we remember Alton Sterling and Philando Castile, let me say it again. Wherever you land on... like. Whatever side you tilt toward in looking at current events, we, we can all agree that death is tragic. Any death and all death is tragic. Let us also remember Brent Thompson, Michael Kroll, Patrick Zamirapa, Mike Smith, and Lauren Ahearns, the five officers shot and killed in Dallas. My wife and I spent eight and a half years living in Dallas. Our kids were born blocks from where the shooting happened. We lived a quarter mile from there for a couple of years and then just two miles-ish away. The church I worked at, our campus, was blocks north of that. I wish every death felt as personal to me as those did. Black lives matter and these lives matter too. Our grieving over black lives lost is not mutually exclusive from grieving over blue lives lost as well. Some really close friends of mine are officers in Dallas. There's a lot of fear, a lot of anger. A lot of fear and anger on both sides. All of these men were image bearers of a God who loves and cares for them. So during we mourn death from Orlando to Minneapolis, from Baton Rouge to Baghdad, we mourn death. So Dodds, knowing that there is this deep well of grace that our neighbors need, and that deep well of grace is only found in Jesus, Dodds' encouragement is this. I wish I had my own words, but it's just, theirs are better than mine. What better time than now for us to build relationships with people who we work with and live next to in a more intimate way, especially, especially those who come from different backgrounds and are nothing like us, especially 
those who patrol, oversee, and protect our neighborhood and city. I want to speak redemptively. I want you to speak redemptively. But redemptive speech is born out of relationship every time. And so let me tell you what I'm doing to take God's advice. And I want to encourage you to take, modify, tweak, do your own thing, but, but maybe follow this practical advice. I'm, I'm asking some African-American friends to teach me. Teach me. Let me shut my mouth and be the listener and the learner in the conversation. I'm continuing to listen to men like Carlos Robayar, one of our church planting residents here at Sojourn. Teach me. I'm listening. I want to learn. I want to know. And then, and then, and it's already set up, I'm going on a ride-along with officers in the city to get a better understanding of what they go through day to day. The one I'm set up on is on what's called the hot team, uh, which is they go to the worst scenarios, the worst cases, and dive right in. And so I'm pretty excited about it. Uh, My wife, not so much. Uh, Because I know this. I know that there is a real divide in our nation, in our city, in our neighborhood, And if the church is going to have a voice in the conversation, the church must have relationships on both sides of the wall. We must stand on both sides of the divide and have relationships with one another. Otherwise, if we don't, our speech will always be either irrelevant or reactionary, but never redemptive. And I want us, and I want Sojourn, and I want myself to speak redemptively. And so we're going to pray. We're going to pray because in some what we're going to pray for, the way that I'm going to ask you to take a few minutes and pray is because, listen to me, you don't know what you don't know. Sojourn, you don't know what you don't know, and you won't love who you won't listen to. You won't love who you won't listen to. And so we're going to pray, and here's going to be the way that we're going to pray. It's not, this is just direction and suggestion. If you want to pray on your own, if you came with somebody, y'all group up, pray. If you want to group up with a couple people around you, Group up and pray with them. If you came with somebody but you don't know the person or, or maybe don't like the person, uh, then don't, don't pray with them. Just pray on your own. But I want us to pray this way. One, I want to pray, God, show us our blind spots. Let's not pretend like we don't have them. Everyone does. God, show us our blind spots. Show me my blind spots. As a community, show us our blind spots. Second, for justice to reign for justice to reign, three, for our nation and our city to heal, and then fourth, for wisdom for the church, for wisdom for the church. And if you, if you want, if you desire, 
Um, we, we have our prayer team, which we have this incredible prayer team here. Every Sunday they gather and they pray over this entire building where our kids are. I'm going to cry every time I see them. I love these men and women. Um, but we're going to have our, our prayer team is standing up in the back. If you, if you want to pray with somebody, but you don't have somebody next to you that you want to pray with or that you know, you're welcome to go back there, stand back there, pray with them. And then after the gathering, uh, they're going to be down front. And so in a minute, I'm going to just close us in prayer. Um, and then we'll go straight into uh, what we do next. And so let me, let me just ask us to pray. You can group up, you can pray on your own, but here are the four things again. Blind spots, justice, our nation, our city, and wisdom for the church.